0: Okay, uh, yesterday was the Sabbath day, just kind of letting you know, take a Sabbath next time, you know, <laughs> like, come a little more alive, it's okay, that's all right, I'm glad that you guys were honest and you're a little tired, so my, my message today is it's um, kind of a two-part thing, I'm going to take this, because I, I am feeling kind of lousy, and I might sit down some, um, last week was, uh, what do we call that thing last week, uh, Touth? Easter. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) This is already going well, Doug. This is already going well. So last week was Easter. And on Easter, what do we celebrate? Anybody just want to just shout it out? This is kind of participatory. What do we celebrate on Easter? How about the resurrection? We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, right? And I, I think it's really interesting that culturally speaking, like Christmas and Easter, the two times a year, people will come to church that don't normally come to church. And it's one of the times of the church where people that are coming two or three, four times a month, they make sure to get to church on Easter Sunday because it's a really big deal, right? Easter Sunday, resurrection. We celebrate this uh, event that many people is vaguely historical. It, it's this moment when A man died on a cross and then rose from the dead, and it's incredible, and no wonder we all want to come and celebrate. It's not just the donuts, right? It's not just the donuts we're here for. We are really here to remember that Jesus rose from the grave. But the thing about Christianity is, is that resurrection isn't something just for Easter Sunday, it is something that we celebrate every Sunday and really every day of every week of our entire lives. But I think often life kind of gets in the way of things and we move kind of further and further away from the resurrection Until we come back around in the calendar to Easter Sunday. Now, that's the joy of the the Christmas, not the Christmas calendar, the church calendar. Because we have every year those bumps of of Christmas and, and of remembering the birth of Jesus, that God came near. And we have this bump at Easter time. And remember that resurrection is real. And we want to teach ourselves and discipline ourselves to stay close to those things. And so I kind of I began asking myself this question, like, how are we supposed to live in the resurrection? Like, what does resurrection have anything to do with us the rest of the year, the rest of the week, the rest of the month? What, what does it do for us? Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time establishing the facts of the resurrection, right? I think that most of us here are convinced of it, that Jesus lived, he was a real person. That's That's historical fact, historical truth, and it's not just based on biblical stuff, right? This is many, many sources outside of Christianity say there was a man named Jesus living in in Nazareth and in Judea at that time, that he was a teacher, that crazy things were going on that people couldn't explain. Um, he was a real person, and we have historical knowledge that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. The Romans themselves, have, they, they took meticulous notes on such things. They said, this actually happened. We did this. This man was crucified by us. And then we know that something happened after his burial, right? There's all kinds of historical record outside of Christianity saying something happened after his burial. Lots of different theories, but something happened. There was a few living men, all right? Roman soldiers posted at the tomb. These were living men. And here's what the Bible says about those living men. These living men were charged to guard the grave of one dead man. And those living men became like dead men as they found that they were guarding the living one, the Son of God. And he comes out of the grave. And so there's all these eyewitness accounts and these people that were so convinced that they're willing to give their lives you know, no one ever recanted their story under the pain of death. The Romans didn't even try to create a plausible alternative. So we have all of this to say, hey, yeah, the resurrection is real. So since as Christians we are convinced it happens, how does how does it change things for us? And what does that do for us? How do we live as followers of Jesus within this reality of the resurrection of, of Christ? I mean, is it really just going to church on Sundays, once a week, you know, at, at most? Some of us maybe will come in for a class, maybe twice a week. Uh, many of us, more and more in our culture, coming two or three times a month. I mean, is that really all it is to being a Christian and living in this resurrection? Is it praying? Is it reading your Bible? The, the theme of resurrection, really, the, the, the meaning behind it is that there's this victory over death. The thing that humans fear the most. And Christians really love this theme. We love to sing, sing, th- sing songs about victory in Jesus. Like that's one of the hymns I grew up singing. I don't know how many. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. And we get really excited about that one. Or I'm going to see a victory for the battle belongs to you, Lord. You didn't know you are getting a concert with this sermon, did you? We love these songs. We get really passionate and excited about this idea of victory. And me too, and rightfully so. Victory over death. That means that death is not the final answer. I said this in my sermon last week. But victory according to the Gospels, okay? Victory over death according to the Gospels does not necessarily look like what we think it does in our American up and to the right, always growing, always more mindset, Victory for Jesus, is, it's pretty typical for Jesus, right? If you think about how Jesus came in and just defied everybody's expectations, right? Everybody's expecting the Messiah to look a certain way, and so he comes, but he doesn't look at all like what people thought the Messiah should look like. His ministry didn't look like what other people thought his ministry should look like as the Messiah, and his salvation in the end does not look like what many people thought of salvation. They were expecting defeat of the Romans, they were expecting all of these things, and yet he comes and he defeats death. And then after that, he comes to life and he walks among his disciples and he shows them what life after the resurrection looks like. It does not look like the salvation they were expecting, it does not look like the victory they were expecting. And so why would this victory look like we think, the victory we have in Jesus now, why do we think it would look like what we think it should look like when all along Jesus is like, no, 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 you're up here saying it's like this, and I'm saying it's up over here. You know, it's always different. The Gospel of John and the Apostle John, um, he records four or five stories right after the resurrection of Jesus that gives us a picture, his whole point was to give us a picture of what it looks like to live in the resurrection, to live life as followers of Christ um, and, and knowing the resurrected Jesus. And they are so counter to what we would anticipate victory in Jesus to look like. And this morning, I want to look at all of them. So this is, this is one of those moments where I really wish all of you had a paper Bible in your hands. Because you're, I'm not going to read the text, I'm going I'm to tell you the stories, but I want you to see how much of it's actually here, how much of the, this, like several pages of these stories of life after the resurrection. And I want you to have in your head kind of where this stuff sits. So he looks at them, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 20 and John chapter 21 particularly, particularly, so if you do have a Bible, open it up to that and take a look, and you'll see these stories in sequence and, and how they happen. They're very different than the stories that came before the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, before uh, Jesus was crucified, he was very public. But now, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, he begins very privately, very small. Uh, before the resurrection, Jesus is out doing miracles and uh, like public healings and healing physical sicknesses and physical diseases. But now, after the resurrection, Jesus is coming and doing something different. He's working inwardly in people's lives rather than a physical healing. Uh, in the before the resurrection, Jesus would go places and lead his disciples around. But now, after the resurrection, Jesus is going wherever the disciples happen to be. In fact, he is systematically and quietly. Seeking out each of the followers of Christ after his death, people looked for him, and now Jesus is looking for them. So there is these four stories, and here's what they are: There's Mary Magdalene in the graveyard, right? She's she's waiting, and we'll talk about this more. But she is waiting uh, in the in the at the tomb, and uh, doesn't know for what. But she's there, she's waiting, and so we have this story. And and it talks about this is the first story of his resurrection. Then after that, we have disciples hidden in a locked room someplace and Jesus just showing up. And then we have Thomas. You guys all, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But we have Thomas and his doubts. And Jesus comes specifically to Thomas and lets him touch his wounds and proves who he is. And then lastly, we have Peter, who had betrayed Christ, uh, had, had uh, said, I don't know who that man is three times uh, it, some of it, at least in the seeing of Jesus, like when Jesus was nearby, he saw and heard what was going down, and he denied him. The man who said, I would kill people for you, is is now hiding in fear. And now he carries his shame, and so Jesus comes to him on a beach and makes him breakfast. So these are the four stories we're going to look at. And as I go through these stories, I'm going to have a piece of art for you to kind of contemplate a little bit and to see behind me. I'm not going to like lead you through some planned reflection on the art, but the art speaks to the truth of the story. And so that'll be behind me as well. And you can kind of interact with the art and with the story. So Jesus, I pray that uh, as we look at what life after the resurrection looks like for us, that you, we would encounter you, the risen Christ, in this place. Um, God, that we would be open to hearing from you and not closed and, and, and distant, um, but that we would we would draw near as you draw near to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So that first story is is Mary Magdalene at the grave. You guys all know who Mary Magdalene was. One of the first followers of Jesus, one of the first uh, people that he actually reached out to and brought a healing to. Uh, History and tradition says that Mary Magdalene was uh, demon-possessed and that he cast out many demons from her. Um, And we've seen lots of depictions of her, but she is this kind kind of quiet person in church history who is out there following Jesus, and she's a woman. I had to make that clear. She's a woman Uh, because history makes a lot of big deals about the men. But in the scripture, it's the women who surprise us over and over again. And so here's Mary. She's come, it says in the passage, that she has come early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, that she came to the tomb alone alone. The different Gospels have, if you're kind of reading them and you try to put this composite story in your head, you think of all the women walking together to the tomb. But John says, no, Mary was there already. In fact, some scholars look at this and say that Mary never left, that they buried Jesus and she stayed in the garden area weeping and crying. The reason she was there first is because she never left in the first place. She's here, she doesn't know anything about resurrection. She she's just she's heard Jesus talk about it, but let's be honest, let's all of us be honest. If somebody told us, I'm gonna rise from the dead, we wouldn't we wouldn't be we'd be like, Yeah, okay, that's weird. And we're just kind of basically caught up in this story of his death. We're not holding on to these fantasies of resurrection, right? Because that's just not how human life works. So she is there and this man that she loved in the very best of ways. That she, she cared for very deeply, she had followed for three years, who had rescued her from her lowest point, is now dead and in a tomb. And she is there in the garden and she is weeping. She doesn't have any clue what might happen in the future. She is just in her pain. The pain is so great that it would feel like it would just be easier if, he, if she was dead with him, right? If you, I don't know if you've ever experienced that sort of pain but there is a grief that can come to us where it would just be so much easier if if we were just dead. That's how it feels. It's not suicidal. It's just that reality of this pain is so great. I'd rather not be here in it. Grief is a really strange time for us human beings. And this is where Mary's at. It's it's, you don't know when the grief is going to hit you. Sometimes you're just sad, and, but then all of a sudden you're just racked with weeping and tears. You, you don't know when the grief is going to end. You don't know when the tears are going to come. It just stays with us and it affects us in ways that we can't even imagine. It surprises us with its force, its power, its strength, sometimes like a tidal wave, sometimes just like a, a washing of the shore. And it pops up when we least expect it. And here is Mary in the midst of that kind of grief, that kind of pain. And she is courageous because she stays with her grief. The story doesn't have her moving on like the disciples, going back into other places, not going and hiding, not, not taking their grief privately. But here in the garden at the tomb, she is grieving. She doesn't get on with it, which many people would say that's, what, you know, that's how we handle grief, right? Just get on with it. She doesn't get over it. She stayed there, and she cried her honest tears, and she felt her honest pain, and she is exhausted. But then, Jesus shows up. Woman, why are you weeping? Jesus was present to her in her grief all along, even though she didn't recognize him. She felt her pain, she felt her sorrow, but she did not feel or sense the presence of Jesus the risen Jesus right there with her. And it wasn't until he called her name that she suddenly recognized Jesus is here. He says, Mary. Now, you guys have ever had anybody that says your name a certain way and you just know who it is? It's, I mean, even if it's your parents when you were a child and they said your full name and you knew you were in trouble, right? I, I have a whistle that I do with my kids. It's just a simple, stupid little whistle, seriously. But we could be in the middle of a baseball game and Isaac could be in center field and I could do that. And he'd be like, what? You know, he he knows my voice, and that's what's going on with Mary. Even in the midst of this pain and grief, she knows the voice of Jesus, and he says to her, Mary. Jesus is saying to Mary, I see you, Mary. I see you. I see what you're going through. I see your pain. For us, living after the resurrection of Jesus is that we find the resurrected Jesus present even in our grief even in our pain and our suffering. That's the victory of Jesus, right? We want to say, oh, it's victory over sin. It is victory over sin, but it is Jesus present in our grief and in our loss and in our pain. So my question for you this morning for this first story is this. Is there a place where you are weeping outside of a great emptiness or loss? What are the places of tears where you need to meet the risen Jesus? And to know that Jesus sees you. To know that Jesus knows what you're experiencing. That Jesus feels your grief. He feels your pain. Even if it feels like nobody else sees. Even if it feels like nobody else knows. Even if it feels like nobody could ever understand what you were feeling. What are those places where you need to meet Jesus? The places of tears where you need to meet the risen Jesus. Places of great emptiness. Let me tell you guys if you want to find the risen Jesus, just go to your grief and pain because he's there with you. That's the first story of what it means to have victory in Jesus is that our pain and our loss and our suffering is not done alone, but Jesus is with you. The second story is the locked room. The disciples are in a locked room and they are afraid. Just to wake up, let's all say afraid, afraid. Let's say it like we actually mean it though, afraid, right? These guys are scared to death. They weren't, (laughs) so Jesus told them, go and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. They They weren't waiting for that. They were like, that was the furthest thing from their mind. What they were waiting for was the pounding on the door of Roman soldiers coming to do exactly what they did to Jesus to them. Right, they, the followers of Jesus are next. That's how they were feeling. So they were terrified. But then there's this wonderful phrase. And if you have your Bible, John twenty nineteen says this: the house where the disciples had met was locked for fear, for fear of the Jesus. I said it. I'm gonna have to read it out of my Bible. I wrote it down in here so that I wouldn't have to go back and forth. John twenty nineteen it says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. If you watch the, uh, the TV show called The Chosen, there's the word I was looking for. They say, shalom, shalom, right? It's not just peace, but it's perfect peace. Shalom, shalom, and that's what Jesus probably said. Shalom, shalom, they suddenly appeared. It's often said, and I have even said this before, that Jesus is a gentleman, right? He's not going to push himself in where he's uninvited or unwanted. He won't force himself on people. God gave us free will for a purpose, and Jesus won't violate that free will. Except that in this story, we see Jesus like literally walking through locked doors to get into a space with his disciples. And I think that that is because these disciples wanted more than anything to be with Jesus. They just were so afraid that they locked the door. For us, we're, we're in the same place very often. We have these locked doors in our heart, in our lives, places where we just don't even know how to open it. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a deep, deep hurt. We don't want to share it with anybody else. And we, we, ser- we certainly don't want Jesus showing up in that place because it is just so awful. And so we lock the door, and, and, and we just don't even know how to open it. Jesus, was, it says in, the, in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open his door, I will come in and live with him. And we're like, we hear, we hear Jesus out there pounding on the door, but we're just like, I can't even let you in here. And that's where the disciples were at. I, I can't, we, we just couldn't even know how to open the door because we're so, so afraid. But deep down in those places... People who follow Jesus, people who love Jesus, want Jesus to come in and be with us there. And that's where the disciples are at. They desperately want Jesus to come in. He's not pushing in where he's not wanted. He's right where we desperately, desperately want him to be. We would give anything, most of us, to live beyond our fears, to live beyond our shame, and to open up to God. And this is one of those places where Jesus... In our greatest desire, our greatest need, he finds a way in. Living after the resurrection of Jesus, we find the resurrected Jesus present even in our locked rooms, right? Even in the places where we don't know how to open to him. Jesus knows where we are afraid and why we are afraid. And Jesus finds a way to come in. Even when when some door of our heart is locked and we don't know how to open it, Jesus isn't limited by that. Isn't that good news? That is victory in Jesus after the cross, that there is no barrier that Jesus cannot cross. Even when there is some broken place in my life, some place I'm afraid to go, some place where no one can see, Jesus is not limited by my ability to be open, to be vulnerable, and to give my life to him. Jesus will not violate us by going where he's not wanted, but he knows our deepest desires and will find a way to come even when we don't know how to open the door. And his word in that place, in that locked room, the words of Jesus are always peace. Man, that's good news. That's victory in Jesus. I'm afraid, peace. I'm angry, peace. I'm hurting, peace. The words of Jesus are always peace. And that's how we know it's Jesus with us, because he comes into that place and we're suddenly no longer afraid. That's victory in Jesus. So my question is, where are my locked doors? Where are your locked doors? Where are the places in your heart that you just don't even know how to open it up and let Jesus come in? The resurrected Christ wants to meet you there. The third story. This is a lot of really good questions, right? And, and I'm hoping you're going to find one of these. It's like, that was the story for me today. You're getting four sermons for the price of one. Yeah. The the third story. This is one of my absolute favorites. Is is Thomas, and doubting Thomas. Uh, one of my favorite songs is a song is I'm, I'm a doubting Thomas. I can't keep my promises, and I don't know what's safe. Oh, me of little faith. I would love that song. I think Thomas though gets a really really bad rap. There's a stupid clip art just for fun. It says Thomas doubts. You know I need proof. This Hebrew news. It's really silly, I understand, but that's kind of how we treat it. Like, it's this scandalous news that Thomas, he was one of the 12. Why would he doubt? He didn't show up. When, when, when he wasn't in the room, uh, when this locked room with the other disciples, and Jesus comes in and appears to them, those disciples go and tell Thomas, and he's like, I am only going to believe it if you show me proof. We view doubts and weakness and failure as faithlessness, right? Right? We view doubt as weakness, failure, and faithlessness. But I say to you this morning that Thomas is one of the best role models that we could ever have. Not cool. Thomas, he, he's, he's a superhero, especially in our, our culture today that is full of doubts and deconstruction and, and, and just concerns over the gospel or what is the Bible true. Thomas is our superhero. Thomas was an honest doubter, right? instead of just giving up and saying, oh, that's it, you guys are bonkers, I'm out of here, he sought the real Jesus. He had honest doubts, and he became an honest seeker. When we face doubts, we we need Thomas's courage to seek out the truth and to pursue Jesus. I want to encourage you to talk about your doubts rather than to just hold them and to hide them to talk about your doubts. It is okay to say to one another, I see that you've had this experience with Jesus, but I'm not there yet. I I need some proof. I need an encounter with this Jesus. Thomas is so practical. He is so realistic. And at the same time, he is a tenacious seeker. He stays with those disciples. He keeps going with them and believing that maybe, if it's true, this Jesus is going to show up to him. He is one of those people that says, I, I want to believe. I want to have faith. But God, I, I need you to help me believe. God, I need you to help me have faith. And I need to see something. He says to the disciples, to other followers of Jesus, "You know, I'm glad you guys believe, but I haven't seen or experienced what you have yet. I'm not there yet. I need my own encounter. This is a very famous painting by Car- Carcavaggio, Kind of fun to say. It makes you sound like an art critic. Carcavaggio. And it's a terrifying painting in some ways because here's Thomas who can't even bear to look as Jesus takes his hand and says, here, put it in my side. Heidi looked at it last night. I was showing him. am like, can I show you the pictures I have? She goes, oh, I don't even want to look at that one. I'm like, okay, I'll look for another one. She's like, no, you need to show that one. So if you're like grossed out, it's her fault. Um, I'm really good at shifting the blame. But here Thomas is being encouraged to doubt his doubt. You know, we're, we doubt facts, we doubt realities, but often we take our doubts as facts rather than to say, hey, maybe these doubts aren't true. Maybe the things that I'm, I'm seeing here aren't how they actually line up. And this is Thomas, can hardly bear to look, and he is touching Jesus, having this firsthand encounter with a living Christ. We're encouraged by Thomas to doubt our doubts and to doubt our disillusionment and to see an encounter with the risen Christ, to have our doubts, but to be open to have them challenged by a different reality. Our doubts might feel very real, but they could be wrong. So the encouragement is to hold our doubts openly like this and to honestly have an, an ask, or honestly, have, honestly ask for an encounter with the risen Christ. Living after the resurrection of Jesus, we find that the resurrected Jesus is present even in our doubts. So the question this morning is, what about you? What are you doubting today? We have been trained to say, I don't doubt. We've been taught that to be a good Christian is to not have doubts, to not have questions. But Thomas teaches us, look, Jesus isn't afraid of our questions at all. He is not afraid of our doubts. And in fact, he is longing to be present with us in the midst of those doubts. Is this your moment of doubt today? Or is this your moment to doubt your doubts, to doubt your disillusion, and against all odds, seek the risen Jesus? Such a good story. Is this your moment? Is this a question for you? The fourth one is breakfast on the beach that's a, kind of a nice name for it i'm gonna take a quick or it's also called i think the important conversation the disciples had got back to life okay they 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 packed it all up and they went back to life as normal they went back to what they knew and they knew how to do which is to fish they left jerusalem and they went back home And uh, we're staying with mom and dad or in their houses that they had. And they got a fishing boat somehow from somebody and went to work. They left the funeral, right? They left the grave and went home. All of us at some point have to leave the funeral. If you ever go to a funeral, they do end. Sometimes they don't feel like it. They feel like they go on forever like sermons. But they do end and you do go back to life. You have to go home. So that's what they did. They went back to fishing. And it's really cool because Jesus shows up in the middle of a really bad fishing story and cooks them breakfast. Several of them are there. It's listed here what, who they are. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, the Sons of Thunder. And they're out doing exactly what they know how to do. And they're having a super bad night of it. They fished all night long. Now, I've gone fishing all day long and never caught a fish. And I've done that many times because it turns out, even though I grew up in Alaska, and I grew up on a river, and I grew up with a fishing pole in my mouth, I am a terrible fisherman. I, I, you know, I, I, my, my, what I say is I go to fish, not to necessarily catch if I catch, that's a bonus. I'm there to fish. But these guys are out to catch because they need to make some money. They've been they've been traveling with Jesus, and they need an income now because there's nobody out there performing miracles and doing amazing sermons. They're drawing in some sort of an income. They've got no income, so they've got to get to work. And they've been out all night long. So fishing all day and not catching anything, that's disappointing. Fishing all night long and not catching anything is devastating. And they're having this terrible night. And then there's this man on the beach, not too far away from them, and he says, you haven't caught anything, have you? And they're like, is it that obvious? The boat is floating high in the water, we're all exhausted, and we just, we look dejected. And he says, tell you what, cast your nets on the other side. Now, they did this before. The first time Jesus shows up to some of these guys, he says, you didn't catch anything, did you? And they're like, no, cast your nets on the other side. And so Why they would take this man's advice, nobody knows, but they do. They pull up the thing, and they throw the nets over the other side, and there they are in the water, and suddenly the boats are going to sink because there's so many fish. And it's very much like the Mary moment, right? Mary is by the grave, and she's weeping. Woman, why are you weeping? She's like, they killed my Lord. They put him in the grave, and he says, Mary. And she's like, what? It's Jesus. That's exactly that moment for these disciples. The fish are overwhelming the boat. And Simon Peter, I imagine him as I read this story, jumps out of the boat. You know, he he jumps over the nets, past all this seething mass of fish, and he is swimming for shore because this for sure is Jesus. And when he gets there, he realizes Jesus has cooked him breakfast. He's already got a fire He's already got a hot pan. There's a fish in it. There's bread nearby. The other disciples manage to make their way to shore. And here they have this moment where they eat breakfast together with the risen Jesus. I love potlucks. Do you guys like potlucks? I love potlucks. All the different foods you get to eat. I love meals in general. Uh, somebody told me the other day they were, they count their calories. They're trying to get a certain amount of calories a day. And it wasn't, you know, like I'm counting calories to lose weight. It was like, I'm counting calories to put on muscle. And I'm like, that's weird. I don't count calories. I count meals. I try to make sure I get at least three of them. And if I can get four, I'm really happy. I love food, but it's the thing about potlucks and about food is it's not just that food fills our bellies. It's that it levels the playing field. We are all equal at the table right? We all have hunger. It's, it's the great unifying thing about humanity. We all need water. We all need food. It doesn't matter what color our skin is. It doesn't matter how much money we make or how much money we don't make. It doesn't matter what we live in. It doesn't matter what language we speak. We are all the same. We need food. And when we come together and eat, it disarms us, and it opens us up to one another, and it makes space for conversation. There are conversations that are important to have in life. And Jesus comes to these guys and he offers them this simple hospitality, this simple breakfast. He makes them some food and he opens the door to a conversation with the disciples. Jesus wants to have a conversation with you. He wants to have a conversation, a long-term, lifelong conversation about every aspect of your life, That there is not some place in your life where Jesus would, "Ah, we don't talk about that. He's like, no, this is all important to me. Who you are, how you live, the pain you've experienced, the pain you inflict on other people with your behavior. I I want to talk about all of these things. These are important conversations. But he's not rushing in with a pointing finger. He's coming in with provision. He's coming in with a meal. Let's just sit down and talk. Let's just have a cup of coffee. Let's just... Let's just chat about these things. There's some things between you and me. We need to talk about it. Peter especially of the disciples had something he really needed to talk about. The last time that he had seen Jesus, he had denied him. Three times. Not just once, not twice, but three times. This is Peter, the rock, the man who Jesus says, I'm going to build the church on you. You don't know what that means. We know what it means. Thousands of years Millions of people throughout history coming to Christ because of Peter, through Peter. But here, Peter is living in shame. He's living in the, with the weight of his failure and betrayal on his shoulders. It's not just the failure and betrayal of denying the Messiah. It's the failure and betrayal of denying his friend. And as hard and exasperating as this story is for Peter, where Jesus says, Do you love me three times? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my land. I mean, it, Peter had to have been just absolutely irritating. You only had to ask once. You just had to ask once. Do you love me? Yes, 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 I love you. But as exasperating as that was for Peter, it needed to happen. Peter needed restoration. He needed healing. He needed a repair of their relationship. And that is why Jesus cooked breakfast, to open up for that conversation. So the question for us this morning is, what is the important conversation Jesus wants to have with you right now? What are those places where you're in darkness and you're trying to keep out the light, where, where you, wanna, you just want to avoid that conversation with Jesus, but he's saying, Ah, here's, let's, just, let's just have a cup of coffee and talk. Let's, let's just sit down and, and, and chat about this, because I want to heal you. I want to restore you. I want to set you free. Because that's what he did for, Je- for Peter. Peter walks away from that conversation, that little breakfast, that little piece of fish, little piece of bread, a changed man. And we go on to see what Peter does in the book of Acts. He goes and starts repeating the things Jesus did. Oh, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. Stand up and walk. He's like raising people up. He is, he is Peter, the man who becomes the rock because of this conversation. So what important conversation does Jesus want to have with you right now? What is the place where you're like, eh, I don't wanna talk about that? Or what is the place you desperately do wanna talk about something? Because the resurrected Jesus, his victory is in the simple hospitality that he offers to have those conversations with you and to bring healing and wholeness. Living after the resurrection means so much more than just getting out of hell. It means so much more than just coming to church and being a part of a community. It means that Jesus is present always, in every circumstance, in every painful situation, in every hurt, in every fear, that Jesus is there with you at all times, in every doubt in every heartache, in every failure. It means that Jesus is coming to us, literally coming to us and just seeking us out quietly when we're not looking, quietly where we can't hear. He is coming to you. He is coming to me. We think it's all about, we think the Christian life can be all about seeking God. I just want to see God's face. I just want this, but he is coming to us. And I think often as Christians, we are just so busy doing the seeking that we miss when Jesus is coming. We're not listening. Or we don't know his voice well enough to understand when he says our own name. Life after the resurrection teaches us that what is happening here is all important. Jesus didn't wait around for the disciples to die to have these conversations. You guys notice that? He's like coming to them right here, right now. He's not waiting for Mary to get through her grief before he, and then her die and come to him. He say, I was there all the time. He's not waiting for Peter to go to the counselor and the psychologist to work through his shame and to see if he could get his feet back under him. And he's showing up on the beach. Jesus is coming to us now because this life, the one that you've been given, is the only one you have, and it matters. And what happens inside your heart, what happens inside your soul, counts So he is proactive with us. It means that Jesus is no longer just working in the externals. He's not just feeding people because they're hungry. He's not just healing them because they're sick. He is working in the interior life of people, his followers. He is breaking patterns of bondage. He is breaking fear. He is setting us free to walk in a new life, working beneath the iceberg to get things done, to go deep and to have a conversation about every part of us. So my final question for you is, what encounter with Jesus do you need right now? Of all the encounters that we read about it after his resurrection, what kind of encounter do you need to have with Jesus? What is he looking to say to you and speak to you? I'm going to give you a minute of, of quiet as the worship team comes up, and then we're going to close with the worship song. So let's just ask that question. Jesus, Spirit, come and speak to us even now. Come where we need you. Speak to us what we need to hear. What encounter do you need with Jesus right now?